If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're in Romans 4, and we're going to go through verses 1 to 8. Romans 4, 1 to 8. The text will appear on the screen, and all the text that we will be looking through to support this main text will also be on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen. Now, what has happened so far is we've gone through three chapters of Romans. And what Paul, the writer of this letter to the church at Rome, has done is he has laid out, if you will, a thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And it goes something like, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. For in it, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so that's, if you will, what the whole letter is about, is about the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And so what Paul does in chapters one and two, and then half of three, is he basically shows how everyone is a sinner in need of a savior. He takes the Gentiles first and shows how they have abandoned God and have gone their own way, and God in judgment has let them go their own way. And then he, in chapter 2, begins to to speak to the Jews and show how even though they have the the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, the heads of those tribes, even though they have the patriarchs, even though they have the revelation of the 37 books of the Old Testament, they're still not right with God simply because of those realities. No, they are sinners in need of a savior. Then in chapter three, Paul does this sweeping quoting of Psalms and Isaiah showing how there's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks him. No one is right with God by their own efforts and deeds. And then Paul begins to unpack Romans 1, 16 and 17. And he says in Romans 3, 28, this is now preface to our text. Paul says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Meaning, you can't get right with God and him declare you righteous in his sight by your own efforts, by your own doing, by your good works or by your not doing bad works. It will not do. You need God to come after you and you need him to provide for you what you cannot provide for yourself justification. Now, that's what we're going to unpack in these eight verses here. Romans 4, 1 to 8, Paul begins to unpack justification, which simply means, it's a forensic word, uh, and, and that means it's legal. It's a declaration legally by the judge of all the earth, you are not guilty. You are right in my sight. That's what it means. And so this text, Romans 3.28, says, how can that happen? Faith. Faith means to trust. And so we're going to unpack what does it mean to have legit faith that saves, and what does it mean to be justified? Let's read Romans 4, 1 to 8 together. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in, you could translate that believes in, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so Paul is having in his mind here the Jewish people again. How do you know that? Well, because he brings up the hero of the Jews, Abraham. Now, if you know anything about Genesis, Genesis 12 introduces this man, Abraham. And he is not Jewish because there are no Jewish people before Abraham. And God promises Abraham, Abraham, out of you, I am going to make a people. I'm going to create an ethnicity out of you and through you from your children's 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 children is going to come the savior of the world. In you, all the nations will be blessed. All the ethnicities will be blessed through you, Abraham pointing to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we know that the Jews have Abraham as their hero. Now, before we get into that, I want you to see what happened when, when John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, comes on the scene to announce the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's not yet revealed to Israel. He's not done any miracles yet. He's not preached yet. But there was the promised one who would come in the spirit of Elijah, who would be the forerunner or foreshadower of Jesus. And so John the Baptist is clothed like Elijah the prophet. He has on camel's hair. He has on a leather belt. And he's in the wilderness living out with God by himself. And his message is simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what John would do is he would receive people who wanted to turn from their sins and turn to God and were waiting for this Messiah to come and save them. And so we pick up there. This is John. He is the he of Matthew 3, 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees, the Pharisees were a religious order of the day. They were very strict keepers of the Old Testament dietary law, ceremonial law, civil law. They were very strict, such that they would strain what they drank to get the smallest of an unclean animal. That's how serious they were. They would tithe their spices. That was Jesus' accusation against them. You, you tithe your cumin and your mint, but yet you neglect the weightier matters of the law. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the second half of the ruling body, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and high priests, they were the Sanhedrin, they were the, the high court of the Jews. When he saw the rulers of the people, that's, that's the point, the rulers of the people of the day coming to his baptism, just to observe, to see what's going on, he said to them, now listen to these harsh words, you brood of vipers, you snakes. Now these are, if you will, the politicians. <laughs> these are the people in charge of the laws and of barring you from religious festival, festivals and from coming to the temple. These are the wealthy and the powerful. And here's this prophet in the wilderness all by himself being like, you snakes, <laughs> speaking to power. Uh, as a prophet often does in the Old Testament. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, John the Baptist is in the line of the prophets, and, he, and the prophets were often warning God's wrath is coming, his judgment is coming. Repent, turn to him, turn away from your sins. 
And then he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not, now listen to verse nine, friends. Here's where Romans 8, 1 come, or 4, 1 comes in. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now that's strange. Why would he say that? You brood of vipers, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance and don't think you can use this excuse. We have Abraham as our father. And then John the Baptist says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones, the stones right on the bank of the Jordan River, these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So here's what was happening in Paul's day and in John the Baptist's day. The Jewish people would see their heritage in Abraham They knew their tribal lineage, and they would say, because we are the children of Abraham, we are right with God, period. And so they looked to Abraham as their first great, 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 great grandfather, and they said, because he was right with God, because the scripture says he was a friend of God, we are in his line, we are the chosen ones, we are right with God because of Abraham. And this was a common saying by the rabbis of that day. They would say, Abraham stands outside the gates of Hades or hell and does not let any circumcised Jew to enter in. In other words, Abraham will protect you from hell. You remember John chapter 8, perhaps you don't. Jesus gets into this argument with these same people, Jews who were against him, Pharisees, religious leaders, and, and they say, we have Abraham as our father. And he's like, no, no, you don't. Because Abraham longed to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And they're like, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And then you remember that epic statement of Jesus. Before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) I existed before Abraham. I willed Abraham's existence (laughs) And so they picked up stones to stone him. Blasphemy. You're claiming to be God and yet you're a mere man. Now I bring this into your uh, focus here to see that what Paul's doing by bringing Abraham into the picture, he immediately gets the Jews' attention. Oh, Abraham? So they would say that Abraham was justified by works because of how he was obeying God, how he listened to God. And so Paul says, listen, I know some of you have this false security in Abraham, so let's see if we can find an example of justification by faith in your hero. And he does. He says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham according to the flesh? Meaning, flesh in this context means what you can accomplish on your own minus God. And often that's what flesh means in the New Testament. It's you in your own efforts, with your own energy. What can you get done? What can you accomplish? What could Abraham claim according to his own works? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Okay, so he's saying, if Abraham was, a, was 
accepted by God as righteous based on what he did or did not do, then Abraham has a grounds to boast. Look at what I accomplished. Look at all I didn't do. Look at how I resisted. Look at all the good things I did. And, and Abraham could boast if his works, his doing good or not doing bad, were able to accomplish God saying, not guilty. But no, not before God. For what does the scripture say? Now, I love the beginning of verse three because Paul is a biblical authority guy. Now, even though he's writing scripture, I'm not sure if Paul's conscious as he's writing this letter to the church at Rome that he's writing authoritative scripture, but where, where does Paul ground his authority for what he's saying? He says, what does the Bible say? And I love that, friends. For those of you who would claim to be Christians in this room, here's what I want to urge upon you. You must have the Bible as your highest court of authority in your life. And then you might say, well, well, why should I have the Bible as the highest court of authority in my life? And the reason is because the Bible says of itself, it is the highest court of authority. Whatever contradicts it is wrong. And whatever it says is true is true. In fact, it goes so far as to say, let God be true and every person a liar. Now, when anything claims to be an ultimate authority, Nothing else can be higher than it, or then that thing is the greatest authority. So, for example, if I was to try to prove to you that the Bible was authoritative by bringing in science, and I said, well, look at what science says, and, and see, this, this makes the Bible true, science would be more authoritative than the Bible. And so, science can confirm the Bible's truthfulness, but it doesn't make it true, right? Right? We can bring in outside evidence to confirm the Bible's truthfulness, but anything you bring in to prove the Bible's truthfulness then becomes the authority over the Bible. And I love that Paul says, hey, it's not about me and my apostleship. I know I saw the risen Christ. I know he commissioned me as an apostle to the Gentiles. I'm not appealing to that as my authority. What does the scripture say? And friends, if you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, you know that this is where we live. <laughs> week by week by week, song by song by song, group meeting by group meeting, we open up and, and say, what does the scripture say? Because friends, who cares what I have to say? Who cares what Eddie has to say or Justin or Pete or whoever else might come out here and preach to you? What does the scripture say? And that's what Paul is appealing to. And he's appealing to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the context here is Abraham is speaking with God, and he says, I will have descendants through one of my servants named Eleazar. And God says, no, no, Abraham, through your own offspring from your own body, I'm going to make a multitude of people. And so God brings him outside into clear air, no electricity, you know, think Cherry Springs in PA, one of the darkest places you can go to see the stars. It's like that because there is no artificial light. 
when God spoke with Abraham at this time. And so the stars are blazing, and he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. So Abraham's looking up, and he's seeing millions upon millions upon millions of stars. And God says, count them if you can. That's how many your offspring will be. And verse 6 says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, who counted it? God counted his belief in this promise of God as righteousness. Now, here's what you need to know about this, this story. Abraham is far beyond the ability to have children at this point. He is old. It is impossible for him to have kids. He hasn't had them yet, and his, his wife is old as well. It's not possible. But God says, it is possible with me. And so Abraham believes this promise of God, and God credits him with righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. And so Paul picks this up, and he says, so what should we say about Abraham? Well, he also had faith, and his faith or his belief in God's promise, God counted or credited righteousness to him. Now, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but the righteousness that was granted to him or counted to him was the righteousness of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He credits the righteousness of Jesus, which would not be accomplished yet, for thousands of years, and yet he says backwards, I'm going to give this to you, Abraham, or looking forward rather, we get it backwards. And so he counts Abraham righteous. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what Paul is proving here is Abraham was counted righteous not because of what he did. He was not justified or not guilty or you are righteous, not because of his works or his efforts or his not doing uh, the things he shouldn't have. Rather, God said, because you believe my promise, I'm going to credit your account with righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works... To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. This is the idea that when you go to work and you put your hours in, you expect to get paid for that work that you do. Most of us would not do our jobs if our jobs were not paying us. Would any of you go to work if you weren't getting a paycheck? Maybe you love your work that much. Okay, I didn't think so. And so the idea is, when you go to work, your, your main reason for going to work should be to glorify God, actually. But then secondly, you, you do it to get a paycheck so you can put gas in your car and food on your table and pay the rent or mortgage, etc. And so when you work, you don't just go out of your way to thank your employer for the paycheck because they owe you. They're in debt to you for the hours you put in or for the work you put in. And so this is the argument here. He says, look, wages aren't counted as a gift, but as a due. And so now he's arguing that when we don't work, we have a gift from God in justification. And no one can boast because no one is due from God. In other words, listen, friends, God owes no one anything. God will not be indebted to anyone. We owe everything to him. He owes nothing to us. In him we live and move and have our being. From him, through him, and back to him are all things. And so this is the idea. When you work, you should get paid. 
And it's a do, it's not a gift. But when you're given a gift, you can't boast in that. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He said, what do you have that you have not been given? And if you've been given it, then why do you boast as if you were not given it? Well, why are you boasting about gifts? We cannot and should not boast about gifts we've been given. Now, we can make quick application. Whether your intellect, maybe you have gifts of intellect, maybe you have certain skills that God has given you, maybe you're very artistic, maybe you have an ear, maybe you can um, counsel people, you have been given great wisdom. Listen, you cannot boast in any of that because God is the giver of all these things. And rightfully understood, we give glory back to God for the gifts he has given us. And when we have that right understanding, we glorify him by using our gifts. But when we make it all about us, we kind of like put neon signs around us that point. Look at me. Aren't I great? Aren't I awesome? Praise me. God is not glorified. And that's what Paul means to the Corinthians. What, what do you have that you've not been given? And if you've been given it, why do you boast as if you haven't been given it? Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes or trusts, him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I love this verse 5 here. And so it's not about working, it's about believing. That word belief is faith because it means trust. It means to trust. Now, the counted word there means this. It's logizomai. It means count or credit. Okay? Imagine that you have a bank account and it's far in the negative. You are in debt. Okay? What God does for you as far as righteousness is concerned is he doesn't just bring your account to zero by paying for your sins on the cross through the person and work of Jesus. He doesn't just bring you up to zero, though he does. You no longer have a sin debt to God. But he then fills your account up positively with the righteousness of Christ. And this, friends, is how God can say, not guilty. Because your sins, your negative debt owed to God is paid for by Jesus on the cross, bringing you to zero. But then you're positively given the fulfillment of the law by Jesus and so you have positive righteousness, active righteousness that's not yours. It's counted as yours. It's credited to you as if it was yours. And this is how the gospel works, friends. This is the mechanics of the gospel. On the cross, Jesus Christ got treated as if he got your sins counted to him on the cross. And he was brutally murdered under the wrath of God. Your sin imputed or credited to him and he died under the weight of your sin. You get credited or counted, imputed his perfection. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't see you in your sin. Rather, he sees you in Christ with that righteousness, positively. And this is the beauty of justification, friends. We could say it like this. It's just as if I'd never sinned. And just as if I'd always obeyed. That's our justification in Christ. And Jesus accomplishes this for us. Now, Wayne Grudem, a, a theologian I appreciate, he, he defines justification like this. Listen closely. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven 
and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. So both negative and positive. Our sins forgiven in Christ because of what he did on the cross and positively Christ's righteousness belonging to us. Two, he declares us to be righteous in his sight. Now, a declaration is simply, you are right in my sight. You are not guilty in my sight. This is the judge of all the earth. As Abraham said, uh, you remember when they were arguing over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Abraham's arguing with God and he says, look, would you sweep up the righteous with the unrighteous? Now, Abraham was not talking about righteousness in the same sense as Paul is here. He was meaning human righteousness. And certainly there is human righteousness versus human unrighteousness, is there not? There are more righteous people than others, humanly speaking. But when you put it up against God's standard, God's law, or Jesus himself, we all fall short of the glory of God. All of us, without exception. Even Abraham. Look, look at the end of verse 5. Justifies the ungodly. Even Abraham, ungodly. And so, what is, listen friends, what do you need to be saved According to Romans 4, 5, you need to be ungodly. Isn't that what it says? And to the one who does not work, but believes or trusts him who justifies the ungodly. You see, here's the problem. If you don't believe that you need to be saved from your sins because you're a pretty good person you reject the saving work of God. You say, I got this, because you believe you're pretty good in and of yourself. You don't need a savior. But when we're ungodly and we're conscious of our ungodliness, then we can cry out to God who declares the unrighteous righteous, who declares the guilty not guilty, who declares the sinner not a sinner. How is that? Because it's Jesus in your place, friends. And you must trust that that is the case for you and that God would actually do that for you. You must trust yourself to this good news, but not just the concept of the good news, but the person who makes the news good. You entrust yourself to the God who justifies the ungodly. Now, the reformers would differentiate uh, saving faith, and so they saw three aspects to it. Listen closely. So this is what you need to have, friends, if you're going to be saved. Listen up. This is important. Number one, the content of the truth. So you need the content of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's that God provided a way of salvation in Jesus he lived perfectly according to God's standard. God crushed him on the cross in our place. He was really buried and God raised him from the dead. And when we entrust ourselves over to Jesus and what he did for us, we are saved. That's the content. That's the content. You need the content. You can't be saved without the content because how can you trust in the news if you don't never hear the news? How can you trust in the one the news is about if you never hear the news? But not only do you need the news, number two, you need to believe that the truth is true. You need to believe that the good news of the gospel is true, like two plus two is four true. Real, 
actual, not a theory, not theology, real and alive and for you. I see this, I understand that with my intellect, and I believe that's true. Yes and amen. But number three, you can't just see the truth and understand it. You can't just say, yeah, that's true. Number three, you must entrust yourself to the God who saves. If you only have number one and number two, but you've not entrusted yourself to the God who saves, friends, you're not saved. You must give yourself over to Jesus, over to God the Father, and say, I am in desperate need of mercy. I am in desperate need of grace. I am a sinner. I turn from my sins, and, from, and by turning, I'm now looking at you, and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. And you entrust yourself to the God who saves. In other words, if I said to you right now, and I want you to think with me, if you stood before God tonight and said to him, or he said to you rather, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say to him? You're standing before God in all his glory, and he has a question for you. Why should I let you into heaven? Why should I not send you to hell? What are you going to say to him? Because that could happen tonight. But I want you to think, what are you going to say to him? Friends, the letter I better not be in that answer at all. Even I believed. No. Because then you're trusting in your belief. Friends, your belief doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. There are people who are believing in their belief. They have faith in their faith, and so it's a work. They're trusting in themselves. This might look like, hey, I raised my hand at a meeting. I prayed that prayer, remember? The, the, the preacher said, if I just pray this prayer, repeat after him, I'll be saved. The prayer doesn't save you. Your signing a little card during a, an evangelistic meeting does not save you. And so if you plan on standing before God one day and say, well, there was this meeting and this preacher said, if I pray this prayer, I will be let in. And so I prayed the prayer, God, you got to let me in. God's going to say, no. Prayers do not save people. Only my son saves people. You see, you need to entrust yourself to the son. And so what you need to say is, you should not let me into heaven. You should send me to hell. That would be right. That would be just. I deserve it. But because Jesus paid for my sins on the cross, because he is my savior, he's my only hope. And then God says, come on in. Come through Jesus. Isn't that, is this not what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But by me. Friends, listen, don't trust in your faith. That's a slippery, deceptive trick of the enemy. No, our faith looks like this. Trust. You see it there in, in five? Trust. Your trust lands on what Jesus accomplished. Your faith needs an object, in other words. Your faith is not just nebulous and neutral. I have faith. What does that even mean? Your faith needs to land on someone or something in order to save you. 
Where is your faith landing? And for Christians, our faith lands in the person of Jesus. We rely on him to save us. He did the work that we could not do. And so we say, save me, and we entrust ourselves to him. Are we there? So one, you need the content. People need to hear. How can they believe if they don't hear? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? And how can someone tell them if they're not sent? Romans 10. We need to go and tell the news. They don't just need to hear it, but they need to believe that it's true. This is true. But friends, if you stop there, now you're at James 2, where James says even the, believe, the demons believe and tremble. Demons believe rightly, but they don't entrust themselves over to the God who saves. They don't give themselves wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, to him. So what do you need to be saved? You need to be ungodly, and you need to be trusting in Jesus and what he accomplished. Those are the two things. Friends, so you bring nothing to God, and you rely, look, all of your trust, imagine your, your trust is all welled up in you, and now it's coming out of your body, and where's it landing? Jesus, what he accomplished. Trust doesn't boomerang back on self in any way, shape, or form. They're not arrows going, no, they go out, and they remain going out, and they land in Jesus. I hope I'm making this clear. And so, to the one who does not work but trusts, trusts him, a person, you see, him, who justifies, declares not guilty, righteous, the judge declaring not, not guilty, righteous, the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, that word counted there is, is the word that means credit. It means gifted to you. It's not yours. And now, let me say, your faith is not rewarded with justification. Faith just trusts. But God, in light of your trusting, declares you righteous because you have the righteousness of Jesus. This is the good news, friends. Now, he then further pulls out another example. He says, look, I know Abraham is the hero, but then if there's a second hero of the Jews, it's who? It's David, the psalmist, the great king from the tribe of Judah, the one who was promised an everlasting kingdom, a descendant will be on the throne forever. And so, though David was a sinner, just like Abraham, David was justified. Ungodly, his sins are clear in the Bible for us to read. They're not hidden. So are Abraham's, you know, given up on his wife twice, you know, given his wife up as if, and lying about her like, he, like she was his sister. And Pharaoh's about to have her as a wife, and he's cool with that. He's just like, hey, saving, saving my skin. You remember the story, right? He, he says, do this kindness to me, Sarah. You're the most beautiful person in this land. And when the king sees you, he's going to want you and he's going to kill me so he can have you. Do this kindness to me. Pretend you're my sister. And then he'll take you. And yeah, he's going to do some nasty stuff to you, but you'll save me. And she does it. 
It's anti-gospel. You know what Jesus does? He dies in order to save his wife. Abraham's like, look, I'll sacrifice you to save me. It's anti-gospel. Abraham was ungodly just as David was ungodly. Murderous affair with Bathsheba, covering it up, pretending like it didn't happen, taking her as a wife, trying to look righteous, like I'll take care of my, my hero soldier here, Uriah, I'll take care of his wife and his family. Come here, you be my wife, I'll take care of you. Shady. Shady, man. But yet here, David is an example of not guilty. You're like, what? And so Paul's doing a good job of not only pulling out the heroes for the Jewish people, but as far as righteousness is concerned, the anti-heroes. And so what does David say? Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes here uh, Psalm 32, 1 to 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts, credits, no iniquity. Justification. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now notice the no deceit comes after justification, and that is the right order. Once we're justified, we do begin to do works that are good. We do begin to be less deceitful. We do begin to be less addicted. We do begin to do actual good. But listen, justification always comes first. We need to get the order right. And so here, David says, blessed, happy, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Friends, this is on the table for you tonight. Full and free pardon of all your transgressions. Your negative account of righteousness brought to zero before God. That's on the table for you. How do I get it? You trust in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross to pay for your sins. And you ask him for mercy. And he will save you. What must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer says to Paul and Silas. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Interestingly, he didn't say, well, just pray this prayer, you know, repeat after me. No, he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Don't trust in yourself. So here, David, before Jesus would even come on the scene, Jesus being called the son of David. David was writing more than he knew here in Psalm 32, and he didn't even know yet how his transgressions would be forgiven, how his sin would be covered, how the Lord would not count iniquity to him or anyone else. But we know, friends, we have the gospel, and we know that this would only happen because David's sin and all the old covenant sinners, their sin would be placed on Jesus on the cross. Just like your sin that wouldn't be committed for another 2,000 years was placed on Jesus on the cross. Your sin paid for before it actually occurred in time and space. David's sin, Abraham's sin, put on Jesus thousands of years later. And this is how God can be just 
and the justifier of those who have faith or those who trust. Friends, so this is good news. Listen, this is good news for anyone and everyone because all you need is to be ungodly and trust in the one who can really save you. Those are the two prerequisites. And yes, you do turn from your sin, which is repentance. But that word just means to turn around and it's the flip side of faith. You can't actually turn towards God unless you're turning away from sin. And so faith and repentance are two sides of the same exact coin. Real faith, real trust in God must at the same time turn away from sin. And so there's repentance and faith. Now, let's finish. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds. That word blessed really does mean happy, by the way. And so let me just pause here. I do have a few more minutes. You are looking for happiness every day. It's kind of God built into you. You are looking for satisfaction and joy and fulfillment and happiness, or as the text says, blessedness. You're looking for this. You're on the hunt. And what you think will give it to you, you don't have yet. But what happens is when you get it, you realize, oh, it didn't work. Right? That vacation will make me happy, but then the vacation comes and you're still not happy. This person will make me happy. You get the person, you're still not happy. This item, this new car, this new computer, this new phone, this will make me happy. You get it, you're not happy. And so it will always be the case that something out there that you haven't got yet will make you happy, but your experience should tell you, no, it won't. No. You're not even using your powers of logic. If it hasn't happened yet, what makes you think it's going to happen if you get the new house or you get the the boat or you get the vacation home or you get to retire or you hit the lottery, baby? As soon as I hit it, I'm going to be happy. No, you won't. Friends, look at this insight. Now, this is where the Bible has authority or it doesn't, friends. And this is where faith or trust in the promises of God comes into real life. Will you believe this text? Happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Friends, in other words, the thing that should make you most satisfied and joyful is that you are forgiven. That as far as the east is from the west, your sins have been removed from you. And not just that, but God says about you, you are righteous because I give you the positive righteousness of Jesus. What Jesus accomplished, I give to you. Now, quick picture, quick picture and we're done. Okay, Matthew 3, 13, 15. I want you to look at how Jesus accomplishes righteousness and we're done. We're going to sing, we're going to take communion, we're done. So this is the baptism. Remember we talked about the baptism of John when we opened up? Remember the the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming out, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath of God. The next text is this one. And Jesus comes on the scene. And John the Baptist knows who Jesus is and he says, I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And we should all say yes and amen. (laughs) And yet, because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, it was one that said, I am a sinner and I need to turn to God. I'm trusting in the Messiah that's coming. Because John the Baptist was saying, 
He's coming. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so when Jesus comes out, he's like, wait, you don't need to repent. I need to repent. So how about you baptize me? Now watch this, friends. This is important to our text. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? You're going to baptize me? Or you want me to baptize you? You should baptize me. But, but Jesus answered him, look, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now, what's going on here? Look, this is what's happening in this text. Jesus was identifying with you and me in this text. He was saying, these people who are out here to repent, these are my people. And I identify with them as a sinner, even though I am righteous. And so when Jesus went out to be baptized by John, Sinclair Ferguson showed me this. Imagine as people are repenting of their sin, they're coming up out of the water and all that sin and slime is in the Jordan River. And Jesus steps into the slime and filth of our sin and he goes under the water by John and that's a picture of him on the cross, drowning in our sin. And on the cross, our sin killed Jesus swallowed him alive under the wrath of God. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? No, he was raised on the third day and now he lives forevermore. And in the same way, he comes up out of the water, <gasps> alive, breathing. See, he identified with us in our sin. That was a picture of what would happen on the cross. But listen, the fulfilling piece, that's what he came to do. That's why he didn't start his ministry for 30 years because he had to live perfectly according to God's standard. He had to please God with all of his motives every single day. He had to do the deeds that God prescribed to do. He had to not do the things that God said not to do. And so Jesus, day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, fulfilled righteousness. Friends, for you, for me, and so now God can look at this sinner, this ungodly one, and say, righteous. And I say, no, not me. Yes, you. Because it's not about you. It's about him. His righteousness is now yours. Your sin went to him, and it crushed him. Better yet, the Father says, I crushed him in your place so that you don't have to be crushed by me. And rather, my arms are open to you, and I welcome you as a child. Isn't that beautiful? And so it's just as if I'd never sinned, because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. But yet it's just as if I'd always obeyed. It's like I lived the life of Jesus. And that's for you too. And so now we're going to close by singing um, one of my favorite, favorite old songs. It's called Before the Throne of God Above. I don't know if there's any more clearer gospel song that's been written. 
Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Jesus is that high priest. My name is graven on his hands, the nail prints. My name is written on his heart. He did this for me. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me depart from God's presence. While Jesus is standing in my place, no one can tell me, you don't belong here. Friends, that's good news. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, and I am guilty, and you are guilty, what do you do when, you, when the guilt of your sin dawns upon you? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. When Satan tempts me to, to, to drown in guilt, I say, no, he took my guilt on the cross, and in Christ I am not guilty because he is not guilty. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, this is the good news.